The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving and that you're all refreshed and ready for um, this uh, great week ahead of us. Um, Our show today is... Um, going to be, I think, very interesting because we're going to talk a lot about spirituality and about um, how we can transform our lives, um, being true to our own moral compass. And our guest today is uh, Craig Knocken, who some of you may know as the author of The Addictive Personality. Um, he has been a counselor for almost 40 years, and he is a uh, popular public speaker and highly respected private practice counselor with years of working in the front lines in a number of addiction treatment facilities. And he's currently written a book called Finding Your Moral Compass, Transformative Principles to Guide You in Your Recovery in Life. Welcome, Craig. Thank you, Mary. Thanks for having me. Oh, um, you know, this is fascinating because um, in working with uh, people over the years, you know, really we, we've used the word mor- moral compass over and over again, you've lost your moral compass, you know, and I don't know that any of us have really taken the, t- the time to define it other than to use it as kind of as a metaphor for what's going on. So um, I'm, glad, I'm glad you took the time to try to define this. Well, I, th- I think it's an interesting concept. I think when we do lose our, lose our way or that, we, um, instead of chasing our value systems, we end up usually chasing sensations instead. I think that's a large thing that happens in addiction. You know, I think, um, you know, when we think about our value system, can you just share with our audience what you mean by that? To me, a value system has to do with our our relationship with uh, spiritual principles. Um, So in that sense, I I, I believe that there's two types of spiritual principles. There are negative spiritual principles, and there's also positive spiritual principles. Excuse me. And... So our, our spirituality has to do with our relationship with either of those. So we can have a negative spirituality or we can have a positive spirituality based on our relationship with uh, these principles. You know, um, I think that as, as, certainly as I've grown, but as we grow older, you know, we, we begin to really look at spirituality and, and begin to define it for ourselves because spirituality really isn't about religion. It's about faith. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people, that gets confused. Yeah, I think, I think that's very true. There's a, a man, uh, Damien McElrath, who, who wrote a good uh, book for Hazelton, just a small little book on uh, the essence of spirituality. And in there, he talks a lot about the difference between uh, religion and spirituality, where religion kind of, you know, in some sense tells you what to believe and where spirituality keeps pushing you toward the questions and so there's, there's big differences, in that I think, that are very important. 
and again, to me, spirituality really has to do with our relationship with these different principles, and then, you know, how well, how well we can uh, bring them to life. You know, um, for for people in recovery, um, they probably know the answer to this question. For, but for our listeners who may not be um, really uh, familiar with uh, the 12-step principles, can you just share why is spirituality important for people in recovery? Why why do they need to have spirituality? Uh, well, from again working with addicts for about forty years in that, one of the things that it's real clear um, that the illness that they suffer from them, really one of the things that attacks, you know, like you could say lung cancer, or, you know, lung cancer attacks lungs and so heart disease attacks that, that um, addiction attacks a person's ability to have an intimate relationship with spiritual principles, positive spiritual principles, and leads more towards the negative ones. Um, so usually when people get to treatment, they're, they have a shattered value system. So they, it, it doesn't really function anymore. Um, and they, what they usually do, what's helpful, and I think part of where the 12 steps have been helpful for a lot of people, is that it's a value system that they can borrow until they can rebuild their own. Um, because we, as humans, we need some type of guidance. All of our interactions will be guided by something, either sensations or, or values. And for, um, I think for, for everyone, the more connected we are to that essence of, of the spirit, I think the more fulfilled we feel and the more um, at peace we are. Yeah, I, I, I really agree with you, Mary. I think the difference of, that, that is if you notice those types of things, like you said, you know, more peace and there's, we talk of serenity and so on, those are, they're, they're not as intense as, you know, excitement or those types of things. And that's one of the things that happens, I think, in addiction is people end up getting um, intensity and intimacy mixed up. And in so doing, they, they chase things that uh, have more intensity to them. And lots of times uh, negative spiritual principles have more intensity attached to them than positive ones. Well, and doesn't that coincide with what we know about addiction being a brain disease and the part of the brain that gets lit up? Exactly, exactly, and it kind of, um, you know, pulls us back into that survival brain. And that survival brain really is actually the part of our brain that doesn't really have very much of a, doesn't have very much of a conscience if it has one at all, you know. In your book, you talk about three basic drives, um, mm -hmm. pleasure, meaning, and power. Mm -hmm. can, can you share with us um, something about each of those drives? Sure. I think um, the drive for pleasure is... Uh, Basically, uh, you know the part of us that, that likes having a sunny day, or likes having a good meal, or or smile when uh, you know when our we walk in the house and our kids smile at us or that. It's that part of us that feels pleasure there. It can also be the part that you know um, gets attracted to intensity and so on. And if you spend your life just you know searching out pleasure, then you end up uh, organizing around uh, the principle of avoidance. Um, you literally become Freud's pleasure, pleasure principle. You, um, you know, avoid any pain you can and go to pleasure whenever possible. And if you, the next drive is the drive for power. And that power basically is our potential. So what we try and do from there is um, what I would say is, you know, 
get from A to B, to be able to create things, have the power to put a life together. But if we, we say that power is all important, then what we end up doing is dedicating our lives to what, control. Uh, that's the major organizing principle is control. And then the third drive that we have is the drive for meaning, which is unique to us humans. Um, that what we can do is experience something, and part of what we want to do is be able to extract what the accurate meaning of what we experienced was and how can it you know, change our lives and how can we have meaningful relationships. And a major part there is what we need to create meaning is, uh, is relationship with positive spiritual principles because those are the things that can, as we you know, send our energy through, those that can help do is transform that uh, Transform our kind of our instinctual side, which resonates in our um, you know, drive for pleasure and drive for power, and then kind of uh, build our conscience. It is basically our drive for meaning. When we think about these these principles, mm-hmm. um, you know, as as humans, we have we have a free will, so we have a choice. Mm-hmm. We can either attach ourselves to um, the concept of uh, like fidelity and um, honesty and um, truthfulness, mm-hmm. or we can detach ourselves from from those things. And conversely, we can detach ourselves from anger and negativity and resentment. And mm-hmm. and I think that um, that takes practice. I think it takes a lot of practice. You know, it takes a tremendous amount of practice. Sometimes it takes a a lifetime of practice to be able to pull some of those off to a way that you know, really work because we also have strong instinctual sides. And I think that's what happens in addiction is it pulls us down to that animal side. And, you know, the longer and longer we, we live there, the more we lose free will. You know, that's why when you talk about addiction, it's a person who's lost free will. And one of the beauties of recovery is it, starts, it gives people free will back. Well, I think people get confused about what free will is. I, I know in people that I've worked with, they conceptualize free will as um, kind of like what we thought of in the 70s, do your own thing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know I, I, I don't have responsibilities. I have free will, you know, and, and I think that gets really confusing for people. Yeah, I think if you really get free will, it it, it sends us right directly to the to the issue of responsibility, that we really then are responsible for what type of life we set up and, and uh, whether we add to the world or we take away from it. What do you think drives people so much to the dark side? Well, it's it's intense, you know. It's exciting at times. It, it offers sensations that, um, you know, a life dedicated, to, you know, and working to live a good life doesn't offer, you know. It's a lot more uh, exciting to see how close you can stand to the edge of the Grand Canyon than it is to stand back 20 feet and look at the view, you know. And so I really do think that that part of us that gets pulled into it usually gets seduced into it. You know, it's like I've worked in this field, like I said, about 40 years. I've never met anybody who signed up to be an addict. You know, most people get seduced into it by chasing these very intense, uh, very intense sensations. Um, in, in your book, you also kind of um, discuss about uh, how the brain interacts with spiritual principles. Mm-hmm. And um, could you share a little bit about that with our audience? Well, it, it comes from 
in my practice of that, with almost all my clients, I, I teach them about uh, Paul McLean's uh, triune brain theory. Um, we've got this uh, R complex, what he calls the reptilian brain, which is our uh, primitive fight, flight, or flight, or excuse me, fight, flight, or freeze type brain. Then we have the limbic system that is around that, which is more about our senses. And then we have the neocortex that surrounds both of those. And those correspond real well to the those drives, like the uh, drive for power would be with the reptilian brain, uh, drive for pleasure would be the limbic, and then the drive for meaning with the neocortex. And I think George Valiant put it once, I saw a lecture he did, and he said, uh, addiction takes place primarily in the reptilian brain. Turtles do not come when you call, you know, which I thought was a nice way of summing up why lots of times people kind of don't follow through with some of their wonderful plans that they come up in treatment and why relapse happens because it takes place on that part of the brain that's based on sensations. And and again, two values like we talk about of respect, dignity, justice, fairness, those all are concepts until we bring life to them. And to that, we've got to um, go up to the neocortex to be able to pull that off. That's why if you notice because um, in the years of working this, I've studied the uh, 12 steps quite extensively. Uh, 20, 25% of the 12 steps have to do with uh, inventorying and reflection and all neocortex type experiences. So it does a lot of behavioral things to pull you up to that thinking part of your brain, which is where we really have free will. But I know, but that's, that's a well-kept secret. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's it's fun for me uh, as a therapist because you know when you kind of lay some of this out, um, it makes it just a lot of common sense to the folks I work with, and and then uh, I teach them this because anytime, anytime they're, um, anytime I want them to be able to stop and tell me what part of their brain they're in, you know, and so it's fun time sometimes when you're doing couples counseling and both couples have gone reptilian to be able to stop and ask them what part of their, their brain they're in, it automatically kind of has them reflect and, you know, take away from some of the energy of the, the heated moment and they can laugh at themselves sometimes. You know, how can people really begin to understand what their own values are, If especially people who, um, you know, started abusing alcohol and drugs early, early on in life or um, people who have, um, you know, have, have achieved a lot over their life and have really strayed from their original, um, whatever their original moral compass was. How, how do people begin to reflect on what, what is my moral compass? Because I would imagine you could become very detached from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, that's a wonderful question in a sense because I think part of it, morality takes place within within relationships. So I think, you, one, you need to, find a community or find other folks who who really are asking the same questions, just like addicts find, you know, a community of people who are chasing sensations. I think part of what um, you need to do is find people who help you, um, whether, you know, and again, it could be 12-step groups with people with different types of addictions or other people do it by, you know, having heroes or, you know, I've got one client who reads everything they can on Nelson Mandela, you know, particularly when they're having kind of a spiritual crisis or something, because it, you know, 
that that person, you know, Nelson or Mr. Mandela, he um, was able to operate by principles to a higher degree than most people. So it's that that be able to study those who who can do that, and um, and then kind of ask yourself those types of questions of how how can I bring this into my life. I think for a lot of people in early recovery, they don't trust that that gut. You know, mm-hmm. um, they'll they'll be in a situation and intuitively, intuitively they'll think this doesn't feel right, but they're not able to um, take that feeling and then do something that um, avoids risk or avoids exposure to triggers or, um, you know, I think that that's hard for folks. Well, you know, it, it, I think. First two years of recovery are very hard in that way because you're you're caught between the world of sensations and the world of, of principles and and uh, there is that you know tug and the pull back and forth and that's particularly why I think people recovering from addictions need need community and need others to help them in the process. Um, again, borrow somebody's value system until they can really reincorporate incorporate one into themselves and. Um, because in, in the book, I talk about the negative spiritual principles like dishonesty, uh, you know, laziness, and um, you know, the disrespectfulness, and so on. And, and all those have a counter, you know, like uh, excellence uh, or perseverance for laziness, or or dishonesty as honesty, and disrespect as respect. And, and so, part of it is it moving from the the one negative side more towards the positive, and that's kind of the um, struggle because most practicing addicts have organized themselves around negative spiritual principles, and that recovery then is based on moving from uh, the negative spiritual principles to depending more on the positive spiritual principles. Maybe we could talk about a few of those um, those pairs of spiritual principles that you've outlined. Um, one of the ones that um, I know I always struggle with is perfectionism to excellence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, perfectionism is interesting because being half animal and half spiritual, we can't do either of them right. So, you know, that's that part. If we shoot for perfectionism, we'll never be able to accomplish it. Where if we really work to, to be excellent, it means just working to be the best that you can in any given situation. And then knowing that you'll probably be some ways where you could improve it from there. So it, it takes that part into it where perfectionism usually ends up carrying us over to another spiritual principle, which is a negative one, which is shame. And we'll be right back after the next commercial to uh, talk more with Craig Nocken about um, finding your moral compass. And if you have any questions, please give us a call. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. There are a number of health and social services available to individuals for low cost or no cost. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with host Melissa Jenkins-Simon. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Craig Knocken, and we're talking about... um, Spiritual Principles and Finding Your Moral Compass. He's written a new book called Finding Your Moral Compass, Transformative Principles to Guide You in Recovery in Life. And before we went to commercial, we were talking about um, perfectionism to excellence. And um, one of the ones I'd like to talk about, too, is chaos to discipline. Because I've worked with so many people who are so comfortable in chaos Mm -hmm. um, that it's like they can't detach from it. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at it, I think, you know, you have to look at kind of the seductiveness of the different negative principles. And I think, you know, uh, they either kind of feed that avoidance or that control part. And and chaos is a very good one. It's, you know, kind of being able to be very, very good at avoidance. It's like, you know, you can get everything so chaotic that nobody can find you. It's, you know, like, you know, hiding your issues and hiding who you are in the middle of a yarn ball. You know, that's... uh, Got 500 different ends to it, and and if you notice, with uh, to really bring positive spiritual principles to light, it takes a lot of discipline. That, and discipline basically is many ways just being able to work with your energy, and instead of sending it over to that instinctual side or that animal side, of being able to keep it attached to these spiritual principles, and then behaviorally operate from these spiritual principles. And that 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 is the work of discipline, you know, and and to get you know, part of it it's a very loving principle, um, because of, of the gifts that it can give you as you as you're able to direct your energy. Because, um, you know, as many people, if particularly the chaotic person or the practicing addict, you know, lots of times they're like a squirrel on amphetamines, you know, so you know, if you look at it, that much of recovery is based on discipline. Just show up and do this and do it over and over. And so it's retraining that primitive 
reptilian part of our brain that actually likes to learn by rote. So if you look at it, when people go to 12-step meetings, they'll go to, you know, they'll study the steps 1 through 12, and then they start again and study them 1 through 12. And they might keep doing that for the number of years that they're in there. One of the other pairs you have is shame to guilt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most people see them as the same, but they're really not. Um, Shame really, they have to do with where you position yourself in the world. Uh, And addiction is all based on shame, where recovery is based in guilt. Um, Best way I ever heard it put is that shame says that you are a mistake, where guilt says that you have made a mistake. And, And if you look at it, like even the way... Again, 12-step meetings start their meeting. Um, you know, people go around and introduce themselves, and they may say, you know, hi, my name is Pete, and I'm an addict, and everybody says, hi, Pete. So, they're, so they're, they emit guilt, and then they're welcome for it. You know, they, they're not shamed for it. You know, it doesn't say, hi, my name is Pete, and I'm an addict, and they're going, you know, what? What are you doing that for? Well, you, know, and, you know, why do you keep showing up here? Why do we get all these addicts? It really is that part of admitting guilt so that you can then take responsibility for it and then start to work with it. And actually the energy that gets released when you go from shame to guilt is a lot of the energy that people use to to create and uh, put the recovery together. Well, doesn't shame keep people stuck in their addiction too? Oh, shame keeps them stuck all over the place and, and it keeps them usually isolated, you know. Uh, that's the other byproduct of, of a life dedicated to shame or a shameful life is, is usually one of isolation. Um, so again, that's why they you, you see the different recovery programs working at, you know, taking responsibility, admitting what you're guilty of, you know, doing your inventory, but that we don't want you to be shameful of it. We just want you to take responsibility for it. That's a big difference, that you've made a mistake versus you are a mistake. What about infidelity to commitment? Because in your book you talk about a couple different types of infidelity, not just what happens in a relationship. Mm-hmm. If you look at it, um, most most addicts again are, are practicing infidelity in a regular way that they're they're not loyal to their spiritual side, so they keep betraying their spiritual side, which really is what if you look at what infidelity is as an act of betrayal. And much of addiction is just an act of betrayal, where learning to be committed is, again, it, it, commitment is, is a similar principle to discipline, but it's that, that act of taking your free will and knowingly choose to learn the skills and to do the work of how to live by a, live by a moral compass. Um, another one that I think people sometimes um, struggle with is Irresponsibility to accountability. I, some people feel like if if I'm being held accountable, then somehow my I don't have my free will. Mm-hmm. No, I, and, and that's an interesting one, particularly because of of so much of it is based on accountability. You know that that no, you are accountable for for using your free will wisely. You know, um, and lots of times, you know. We can feel that reluctant part. We can feel that animal side of us not wanting to, um, you know, surrender up different things. We we often get uh, surrender and submission mixed up. So uh, 
many times, you know, in, in particular for addicts because they've been submissive to their illness for so long that, um, you know, and basically submission is, is, you know, when some someone or something's power is is on top of you, holding you down, and so you make your choices based on the oppression of this other power, uh, where where surrender is an active choice. Um, so so submission really is always a, a contraction. You feel it contracting you down, um, where surrender really is an active expansion. Um, and that's, that's it's a hard one to get, particularly in early recovery, because so much of addicts' life has been based on submission to their illness. So they really get that mixed up uh, early on and, and can be very hard for them to learn how to submit. And in particular, if you've been raised in a, a family based on power or an abusive um, family, you know, you've you've waited for your own day of where you can get your own power and, and you know, and you, you've made promises yourself that you're never going to submit to anybody again. So now when, you know, people start talking about surrender, you'll just, you know, very easily get those two mixed up. Well, and I think um, so many people feel so out of control that they try so hard to control everything around them. And the paradox is that once you surrender, you really then have control. Yeah, I, I think that's well put. You know, it's, you know, it's again much... And that's the interesting part to me is that the way that you solve paradox is by bringing, you know, positive spiritual principles into play, you know. When you can make those more important than your own ego, that's how you solve a lot of these paradoxes. I mean, if you look at a recovering alcoholic, is a surprise, I mean, it's a solved paradox, you know. Because um, usually, you know, sub- sober and alcoholic don't go together. Right, right. Um, one of the other ones I thought um, was interesting is rugged individualism to relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a particularly interesting one in our culture because you know we're trained to, to depend on rugged individualism. You know, and there's times where, again, to some degree, independence and those types of things are important. But rugged individualism really is that part that gets down to I don't need anybody. I can do it all myself. You know, that's why it's a you know, the opposite of relationships. And, and that one, I think, is one that we float back and forth uh, quite regularly on that continuum. Because that's, again, one of the things that's nice is these, these um, different, you know, uh, the, it sets up a continuum, the opposite, you know, one negative spiritual principle and the positive spiritual principle sets up this continuum that we, we float back and forth on. You know, we're never constantly on one side or we're never constantly on the other. Yeah, that's kind of true for everything, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. One of the, um, there, there are two that, um, if you could just explain uh, what what the, like the difference is between lies to truth and deceit to integrity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, you know, again, all of those, if they, you know, and there's that tension between all of these. Um, and I think it's that tension if we really can kind of step into it. You know that way we can learn about both. You know, so we have to learn about how how are we honest. You know, it's uh, even a you know a practicing addict is is honest much of the time. You know, just not maybe around their drug use or around those certain topics. But and um, and even the you know the very honest person is dishonest at times. So it's really is to look at that 
what is our own personal relationship and where are we at? That's why I think a lot of people do, you know, annual reviews or, you know, do a, a regular fourth and fifth step or, or go on spiritual retreats. It's basically to kind of look at where am I, where am I at right now uh, with my relationship with spiritual principles. And that's, in fact, it was interesting, one of my clients who, who um, he took the book on a spiritual retreat he went to and, and he said it was very interesting. He, he used the, the charts that were in there on the, on the negative spiritual principles and on the positive and kind of used that as his guide for uh, his inventory that year of, of looking at where was he at in terms of these 41 principles. I think that um, I think a lot of people take the whole spiritual part of their lives for granted. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of work that you need to do to be spiritually healthy. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that the people who are able to embrace recovery and find a spiritual path are really the lucky ones. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people out there that are just spiritually bankrupt, mm-hmm. and they they keep chasing things, um, whether it's relationships or food or money or power, and um, no matter what they do, they can't fill the hole in their soul, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and I think that, you know, when you find your moral compass, then you have to have, the, um, I guess, commitment to to honor it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I think, I think, again, you're absolutely right. I think you've got to, you know, honor it and you've got to take care of it and and then learn how to use it well. You know, I know when I was in uh, the Army in basic training, they, you had to use a compass to get from one area to the other. And uh, it was actually quite complicated in how to use it, you know. Um, so we ended up lost quite a bit, you know. We usually blamed it on the compass, but maybe it was more that we didn't know how to read it. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it really, to live a spiritual life, I think, takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of discipline. It takes a... a a, a very much of a, a willingness to to put ego aside or or take the energy of ego and and uh, let that be used uh, in the in the for the function or for the dedication of spiritual principles. Have you ever known in your years in, in doing work um, counseling work somebody who was able to enter recovery without finding their moral compass? No, no. I think everybody. Does I, I don't think it would be most of those people wouldn't call it a moral compass. They would just kind of some. It's it's reuniting with a with an old value system that uh, maybe they had before, or uh, reconnecting with the community, whether it's a uh, uh, religious community that does offer them guidance in terms of that, or whether it's uh, finding a new one within twelve step groups, or or connecting with a good family member or good friends who have good value systems. But I think all of us have to really wrestle with that, that part of, of, of who we are. Have you, have you ever read the book uh, Spirituality of Imperfection? Um, a long time ago. Okay. Yeah, I think that's one of the greatest books. If you're going to get a book, I know I'm supposed to promote my book, but that's a great book to read. And, and he talks about the gifts that we're given is our imperfections, you know, that so the fact that we're incomplete is, is part of why we need others. And, and I think because we, we struggle on these con- different continuums, because um, we are both negative and we are both positive, that 
that's why we need others to help us in that and help us see our blind spots. And so we, we really do need um, relationships. And, and again, relationships give us a place to practice it. Right. And it takes a lot of... Um, I, think, I think for people who are regaining their... Um, kind of their, their value system, mm-hmm. um, you know, if they're blessed to have people in their life who are willing to help them mm-hmm. regain that, mm-hmm. then, um, then that's a wonderful thing. But for a lot of folks, you know, they've burnt a lot of bridges. Yep. And so I think, um, you know, where they find that opportunity to practice is really important. Yes. Yeah. And I think there, a lot of those people are very vulnerable during that time. So, you know, that's, again, the need to have others help them or, or be cautious. Uh, I think that's where finding a good counselor that can can be, be helpful because people are very vulnerable in that way. And that's why most of my clients, when they come out of treatment, I, I ask them to, you know, not go to the casinos for a year, not uh, go to any uh, porn shops or any, or watch what they eat or different types of things, talk to a nutritionist. Because, you know, um, like a kid with my clients, that addicts are attracted to shiny objects, and there's a lot of shiny objects out there. Yeah. I think one of the nice things about um, the way you've written this book is that it's, you know, you, you line up the, the negative, but then it's the focus on the positive. And I, and I sometimes think we get too focused on character defects mm-hmm. and not enough uh, emphasis is put on what's right and, and what, what you're doing well. And I think that... That's really important. I think that's how we kind of regain our, our our sense of ourself and our power is by this is what I do well. This is who I am. That that's mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. No. And so. even with a lot of people who come into recovery, I mean, when you, you know, and that's the part that I'm very lucky as a counselor is to get to sit and and listen to them and hear some of their stories. Um, you can just see where they make the mistake of of. Um, ending up finding and chasing sensations. I mean, you know, a lot of people grow up in some really ugly homes and with some ugly circumstances. So, um, you know, it's like one guy that I worked with, his father was an alcoholic, and Friday night he would regularly beat him up. And um, so he, you know, when he was about 13, he found amphetamines for the first time and, and got a tremendous amount of power or felt a tremendous amount of power. And so at that time, Drugs weren't a problem, they were a solution. It was just later when his drug use became as abusive as his father, even more so, that, uh, that then he had to admit that uh, you know, he'd taken the wrong turn. Which is probably something he vowed he'd never do. Right, right. And he thought that he had the power not to. Right. Particularly when high on amphetamines. And we'll be right back after this next commercial and talking um, with... Craig Knockins, more about um, finding your moral compass. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? 
Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods and... um I hope you're enjoying the show, and we're talking about spirituality today and um, finding your moral compass with Craig Nakin, who has written a book by the same title. Um, Craig also wrote The Addictive Personality, which um, a lot of you may be very familiar with. Um, you know, I, I, in your book, you've done this really uh, cool chart that looks like um, the table of elements for people who've taken chemistry. Mm-hmm. positive spiritual principles and the negative spiritual principles. But um, in on your chart, the, there's two that are bigger than the other, the rest, and they're highlighted in bold, and that's truth and love. Mm-hmm. And um, why why did you pick those two to to, to highlight? Well, I, I think they're the the hardest to understand, and they're the ones that are bigger than most of us. Um, and uh, so. So they're just, they're so powerful, but they're also so hard to put into practice. I mean, I think, I always say I think there's three different types of truth. There's uh, my truth, uh, there's a truth that I think that when we come together, uh, if we, we work together, we can come up with a truth, and then there's the truth, which I don't think any of us really know, and if you find somebody who knows the truth, I always recommend running away from them as quick as you can. Um, and that what we really can do is share our own truth and, and look for a truth or, or, you know, come together in community and find a truth. Um, so those are that, that's one that's hard. And then to love, I mean, just the dimensions of it and the vastness of it um, and the healing power of it is, is just uh, enormous. I think one of the things that I've certainly come across in over the years is um, people have... Um, you know, I think it's, it's, I've said this a thousand times, you know, um, anger is neither right nor wrong. It's what you do with it. And a lot of us have learned very, um, you know, uh, I guess hurtful ways of dealing with our anger. How can you apply these principles in dealing with anger? Well, I, that's, a, that's a fantastic 
question, and, and I, I work a lot with that because, um, you know, when you're working with people who are scared as most of recovering people or who have been abused as many of the people that I work with have, you're working with anger lots of times. And one of the ways that I work with it is to, you know, again, when they learn about their their brain and the triune brain theory, they can see that anger really comes from that reptilian brain, that it clearly is a fight-flight uh, response. And what I do is work with them is have them see that that anger almost always is a secondary emotion, that underneath it is usually either sadness or fear or a sense of powerlessness. Excuse me. Uh, so when they're angry, then what I ask them to do is stop, reflect on it, and be able to tell what's underneath it. Um, and then when they do that, then that's where I use those charts, you know, and it really, like you said, it does look like the elements chart. Um, that's what it was, you know, that's where the idea came from, is is to look for which principles on that that chart that they need to better the relationship with to be able to handle the situation. Um, so it, it's a very, what I'm trying to do is make it practical. The, the part I really like about spiritual principles that all spiritual principles can be broken down into behaviors and that then when you do those behaviors uh, regularly, consistently over time, then what you can do is become skillful at it so that you can you know, kind of create almost like your own deer stand where you can watch yourself, like see yourself becoming angry, ask yourself what's underneath it. And, okay, maybe it's because I'm hurt by what the person is saying. You know, then what are my options of what I can do? Maybe I can be more honest and I'm more hurt than angry or more I can use some of my discipline to discipline some of the, the energy that's being activated by it. Um, you know, or maybe I can have some compassion for, for how hurt the other person is or whatever is needed for the situation. So that's where the real work of it comes in is being able to, um, particularly with anger, is a uh, principle that's needed a lot is discipline, being able to discipline those, uh, the energy of anger. Because a, a lot of anger is usually, you know, what you usually find is mostly there's fear underneath it, um, sometimes a lot of sadness or or a sense of powerlessness, but a lot of it is fear management. You know. Another thing that you talk about is um, using uh, positive spiritual principles uh, with language, and um, that's kind of fascinating because I think language is so important to how we mm-hmm. how we perceive people. I remember um, when I first worked in an outpatient clinic many many years ago, one of my coworkers was talking, was kind of bemoaning the fact that her next. Um, client was a raging borderline mm-hmm. and I, when I went first went to work in mental health center I remember um, clients just identifying themselves by their mental illness and, mm-hmm. and that was that was their whole concept of who they were so I think language is really important and can you talk a little bit about um, how, how you use this in terms of spiritual principles and language sure um, I think there's a section in the in the talks about it's called gate language it's uh, something that I use with my clients again I've got some sheets I give them and I think the uh, sheets actually in the book that looking at you know most people don't really listen to themselves and what they're saying and that depending on what we say and the words we use that they they send our energies in different ways so 
when, um, you know, if you're saying, you know, nobody cares about me, nobody's ever cared about me, those types of things, then it's almost like if people can step outside and look at that, they can see that the gates are kind of opening up, and I have two lands that they go to, either tough land or victim land. So you can see with that one, clearly the gate would be opening up, and the energy then, instead of going towards one goals and principles, um, goes now towards um, believing or seeing yourself as a victim, um, which means that you have no choice, so you have to give up your free will and those types of things. So, So to look at, you know, what is my language, either with other people or the language that's going on in my head? And then does it send me either towards, you know, victim land or tough land? And once you see that, then what you can do is is learn counters to that, you know. So, like if I say nobody cares about me, and I can say, well, you know, that's, that's not true. You know, there's Pete who cares about me and Nancy cares about me and these other people, you know. My counselor cares about me. The, the different types of things where you can build counters to it, um, bring more truth to it, because usually those two um, tough land or victim land are, are usually have some lies involved in it. So it, it's fascinating when we start working with our own language and, and being able to catch it and then uh, you know talk to ourselves in different ways. You, you know, there's so much that we can um, do just by changing our, our thoughts. You know, mm-hmm. in, in how in our language and how yep. we perceive ourselves and the world around us, um, it's, it's really all fascinating. It can be so simple. And you know, and I think that's so much of when you look at what happens with people in recovery in the twelve step programs. That you know, I mean, you can really make a very good case that the twelve steps are just cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, and changing the language, the way you talk to yourself, and you know, and learning a whole new language, and the way people talk to you, you know, they're not, they don't talk in a real negative, angry way. They talk more, you know, um, you know, in a way that they're, they keep using and directing their anger towards their goal of staying sober and uh, living a good life, you know. So there's a, it's nice to have places where people, you can send people to that, that they can practice and they can see this stuff in action. What's probably been the most dramatic um, example you have of somebody um, transforming their life with with uh, with these with, with any of these principles. I, I, I thinking in the in the book um, what I've got is I'll talk about the negative spiritual principle, then the positive spiritual principle, and then I'll, I'll give an example of, of some of them. There's a one man in there that that just everybody had given up on him, um, but he. He was really dedicated and, and disciplined with with going to recovery, but he had a really tough addiction. He was a crack addict and a sexual addict, you know, and those two combined just to really, you know, beat him up badly. And, and he had been through treatment maybe five or six times, or and uh, you know, and he'd go to meetings and go to different types of things. And, and again, most everybody had given up on him, and um, he's just a delightful man nowadays because he kept persevering at it. I think that's what he was under as a thing of perseverance because uh, he really knew that it would work and, and knew that somewhere if he kept trying, he'd get it someday. And you know, and now I know he's got about three years sobriety and has two wonderful children and uh, he's living a good life. If, if people want to practice, um, you know, like enhancing the positive spiritual principles, how do they do it? Well, I, I think that's one is you know hopefully where the where the book could be helpful is if they could 
read about him, and then look at where would they place himself on that continuum. Um, that's the first part, is using honesty of, of what is your relationship with these principles. And then looking at how behaviorally you could put the, the positive spiritual principles in, into action. So, you know, looking for what are the practicals that I could do with that. You know, what, how, how could I be honest? You know, can I see if I can go for 24 hours without telling a lie? You know, um, you know, looking at it in different ways. How can I allow myself to be more disciplined? What would that look like? You know, I'll, I'll use uh, an exercise program where I'll go walking every day for the next uh, 20 days and, and accomplish that, you know, or uh, looking for, the, again, the practical ways of putting it uh, into practice. Um, if there's one thing you could leave our audience with um, in terms of transforming your life, what what would it be? I I guess it would be the, the principle of hope. Uh, you know, that's the that's beauty of, of working in this field and working with... Uh, with uh, the families of addicts and working with addicts for you know 40 years, it, uh, it's it's taught me so much about hope and dignity and and you know fairness and justice and it, it, it's that type of things that are really the, the gift I've been given is is to seeing that these principles really work because I you know in many ways I have no idea what a higher power is but, but I know in a practical sense in a daily print you know these principles really. If there is, it's a, you know the working representatives of, of what a higher power would be, um, or it is what a higher power is, just so many different dimensions of it. So uh, it's it's just I would say hope and and you know just a belief of that being a human being really can be a wonderful thing. Um, you know when you when you live a principled life, and that um, and that it's possible. Oh, absolutely possible. Um, you, you, this is um, your second book that you've written? Uh, actually, the fifth. The fifth. Do you yeah. have another book in mind? You'd mentioned that uh, you're kind of at the end of your counseling career. Uh, nope. I think this is going to be the last one. Yeah? Yep. Yeah. So where can people find it? Um, people get a hold of you, and where can they find your book? It uh, came out. It should be in the bookstores, uh, or can be ordered through the bookstores, uh, or... Hazelton, uh, their website, uh, you can get the book through hazelton.org. Uh, um, those will be the two places where you can get the book. And how can people get a hold of you, Craig, if they want to um, you know, contact you or they have questions for you? Or... Uh, basically, probably through the email would be martincn at earthlink.net. I don't have a website or anything like that. I'm not much of a marketer, so... More just like being a counselor. Yeah, that's that's much easier. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, I I guess um, in terms of marketing, do you do you see uh, a moral compass? Do you see a physical moral compass that we'll be able to use with clients? Do you see oh yeah, developing something. Um, yeah, well, I, actually, I, I use it in a lot of the workshops that I that I do. We've, we, you know, like. Um, you know, there's practical things like, you know, give people a problem and then they have to figure out what are the five top spiritual principles to solve it. So there's a, a lot of different ways to use it. Um, I've seen some people even do little magnet type things. Yeah, that's what I was kind of thinking of, something very visual and that you yeah. hold your hand. Yeah. Yep. And uh, 
So it, it can be a real fun thing, and it, it's a great thing to use with groups with uh, kids just so they can talk about values. Anytime you get people talking and reflecting on values, and they're going to learn about them. Thank you so much for um, spending this hour with us and um, for this fascinating book. I'm going to recommend it to some people I know. I've read most of it, and uh, I thank you again for uh, joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Mary. You have a great rest of the holiday season. Thank you. You too. And um, have a great week, everybody. And um, I hope you find on uh, find your moral compass this week and you grow your spiritual self and have a wonderful week. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.